Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, Joshua chapters 6 and 7. Well, the last time uh, we met, we ended in Joshua chapter 6, whereby Israel conquered Jericho and they killed all of its inhabitants except for Rahab and her father's family. And two principles were at the center of that lesson. First was the principle of the ban, B-A-N, also called the law of Cherem. And the second principle was that a former enemy of God could upon profession of faith to the God of Israel, be brought into the camp of Israel. Now, the first principle of the ban was that all the spoils of holy war belong to God. The spoils of holy war, or any war for that matter, are the enemy people, their possessions, their farm animals, their place of residence, including both the village or the city and their personal homes. But because these spoils from Jericho were God's holy property, they could not be taken or used by anyone. To do so was to rob God. The only approved method to present the spoils of holy war to the Lord was to kill whatever had been living and then usually to burn it up. Turn it into smoke. Okay. That meant the people, the animals, the field produce, it was all to be destroyed. The city or village was to be destroyed or, and burned. But usually, valuable metal objects and all the gold and silver were to be handed over to the priesthood because they were seen as God's servants and his earthly representatives. So it was like turning it over to God. Well, the burning of God's holy property as the means to devote it to him and to him alone is reflected in the principle of the burnt offering. That is, things were burned up on the brazen altar not as the means to kill them, but as the means to both keep them from being used by people and for handing them over to the Lord. The principle of a former enemy being given the opportunity to become a friend of God and a member of the covenant community is what's being reflected in the narrative near the end of chapter 6 whereby, if you'll recall, Rahab and her family are rescued from the ruins of Jericho and at first... They're allowed to live with Israel, but outside the camp. They enjoy the security and the fellowship of Israel and of Israel's God, yet they're not the fullest possible members of the community yet. They receive some benefit, but not all. There are certain benefits that can be obtained only by being circumcised, and thus being made complete members of the community. And that's illustrated by Rahab and her family in time being allowed to move from outside to inside the camp of Israel. Now I suggested to you by means relating a vision to you that Dr. Bob Layton, our Saturday evening praise and worship director, had that very much is an illustration of this condition of a Christian. Okay. When we're first saved, we receive many benefits of being near God's covenant community because initially we're still residing outside the camp. If we mature, if we open, become very open to our recognition that our salvation was a product of Israel's covenants with God, that those covenants are intact, that Israel's our elder brother in the faith, we can then move inside the camp. 
for a closer, yet a, even closer relationship with God. Either way, we're saved. Just as either way, Rahab was saved. Whether she lived inside or outside that camp. Now, don't mistake what I just said as a call to Judaism. All right? Nor a suggestion that a move to Israel is in order for us. All right? What I'm describing is much more of a spiritual than a physical matter. Okay? It's a call to join the true spiritual ideal of Israel on the one hand, and on the other to obey the Lord's earthly command to love and to bless and to comfort his people. So before us all lies a choice. Do we want to be a Rahab that lives at a subsistence level, if you would, saved but outside the camp, or do we want to be a fully committed Rahab that lives to the fullest inside the camp? That's the choice. Let's reread the last few verses of Joshua chapter 6 together just to kind of refresh our memories. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's pages 246 and 247. We're going to read about the last four verses. Then they burned the city to ashes with everything in it except for the silver, the gold, the brass, iron utensils which they put in the treasury of the house of Adonai. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's household and everything she had. And she continued living with Israel from then until now because she hid the messengers Yahshua had sent to reconnoiter Jericho. Yahshua then made, up, made the people take this oath. A curse before Adonai on anyone who rises up and rebuilds this city of Jericho. He will lay its foundation with the loss of his firstborn son and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son. So Adonai was with Joshua and people heard about him throughout the land. Here we have Joshua issuing a curse upon the ruins of the city of Jericho. And it is that that city should never be rebuilt. Now the penalty to the leader who would rebuild what God has destroyed is that his firstborn and lastborn sons would die in the process. Now Joshua placed the city under the ban forever. Jericho was set aside now as devoted to God as a spoil of holy war for all time. To rebuild the city was to retake possession of something that didn't belong to that leader or tribe that might attempt it. Understand that what's being communicated is not that people could never live in Jericho again. It's that a walled fortress, a protected city with gates, was never to be rebuilt. Recall that the symbolism attached to that closed up and barricaded city of Jericho that resisted God's people was of setting itself against the Lord, of stealing itself, hardening itself to his will. The result of that decision and action is ultimately destruction. So a small settlement of people, a village, is not at all being contemplated in this curse, at least not in its simplest sense. That some Hebrews might use the stones of the ruins of Jericho to build themselves a little house and then farm the area and raise livestock is one thing. But for an enemy to establish itself or a king even from among Israel to, to rebuild it was quite another with walls and gates. Later on in Israel's history, in fact, about five centuries later, a leader would come along and ignore this curse and bring upon himself the exact punishment that was called for here. We're going to read about it in the book of Kings. Open your Bibles 
to 1 Kings chapter 16. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 390. We're just going to read a few verses of it here. That's the appropriate part. 1 Kings chapter 16. I'm going to start reading at verse 29. This is a fulfillment of what Joshua said what happened, and this happened again about 500 years later. It was in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that Ahab, the son of Omri, began his rule over Israel. Ahab, the son of Omri, ruled 22 years over Israel in Shomron, Samaria. Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil, from Adonai's perspective, outdoing all of his predecessors in wickedness. But then, as if it had been a trifling thing for, for him to commit the sins of Yerboam, the son of Nvat, he took as his wife Isabel, Jezebel, the daughter of Eightbal, king of the Sidonim, and he went and served Baal and worshipped it. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Ahab also set up the Asherah. Indeed, Ahab did more to anger Adonai, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel preceding him. It was during this time that Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, Aviram, and erected its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Skuv. This was in keeping with the word of Adonai that had been spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. God's word will happen. We have a common Christian saying that we use rather often, but forget that it has two sides to it. We love to say, God's word will never come back void. We usually mean it in the sense that if we learn the word of God or teach it to others, that in time, blessings from it will come about, hopefully, beginning with salvation, resulting in lives changed for good. The other side of that is demonstrated here. When God ordains a law with a consequence for its violation, or vows a curse, as in Joshua 6, it will not come back void. Okay? It will not be forgotten. Hale lost his oldest and youngest sons exactly according to the curse as a consequence of rebuilding Jericho as a walled city. See, just like us, they thought, hey, come on, 500 years has passed. This couldn't still be in effect. He found out. Let me point out something else that's happening in our time regarding Jericho. Which demonstrates that that curse didn't end with the beginning of the New Testament. For a long time, especially since Israel's return to its land in 1948, Jericho thrived. Jew and Arab lived side by side there. And a nice village was built next to Jericho's ruins. The date palms that grow there became renowned for their quality. And a thriving tourist industry bloomed. And the residents of Jericho had done very well for themselves. Since the Intifada that began only a few years ago, and since Jericho became officially designated as a Palestinian possession, the place has wilted. Armed soldiers at roadblocks greet potential visitors. The enemies of God have again tried to make Jericho a stronghold against the people of God, and so they have unwittingly placed themselves under the curse of the ban. Jericho. The place is poverty stricken. Okay. Only a few tourists will venture there anymore, even though lots of tourism is hoped for. 
as one who leads tours to Israel, I can tell you that it is not a matter of whether the place is reasonably safe, and I'm not so sure that it is. It's a matter that as long as it remains a place occupied by the enemies of God for the purpose of defying Yehovah and his chosen, it is under a curse and I want no part of it. Let's move on to chapter 7. Open your Bibles, Joshua chapter 7. We're going to read it all. Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel misappropriated some of the goods set aside to be destroyed. For Achan, the son of Charmi, the son of Zafdi, the son of Zerach, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the things reserved for destruction. In consequence, the anger of Adonai blazed up against the people of Israel. Yahshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is next to Beit Avin, east of Beit El, telling them to go out and spy out the land. So the men went up, reconnoitered I, returned to Yahshua and told him, don't have all the people go up, but let perhaps two or three thousand men go up and attack I. There's no point in making all the people exert themselves to get there, because there's only a few of them. So from the people, about three thousand men went up there, but they were routed by the men of I. The men of I killed some 36 of them and chased them before their gate all the way to Shvarim, attacking them on the descent. The hearts of the people melted and turned to water. Joshua tore his clothes and fell to his face on the ground before the ark of Adonai until evening. He and all the leaders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Oh, Adonai, God, why did you take the trouble to bring this people across the Jordan if you just meant to hand us over to the MRI and have us perish? We should have been satisfied to live on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Adonai, what can I say? after Israel has turned their backs and retreated before their enemies. For when the Canaanites and the other people living in the land hear about it, they'll surround us, they'll wipe us off the face of the earth. What will you do then to save the honor of your great name? Adonai said to Joshua, Stand up! Why are you lying there face down? Israel has sinned, yes. They have violated my covenant which I commanded them. They have taken some of what was to have been set aside for destruction. They've stolen it, lied about it, put it with their own things. This is why the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their back on their enemies because they've come under a curse. I won't be with you anymore unless you destroy the things meant for destruction that you have with you. So get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for here is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. Israel, you have things under the curse of destruction among you, and you're not going to be able to stand before your enemies until you remove those things that were to have been destroyed from among you. Therefore, tomorrow morning, you're to come forward one tribe at a time. The tribe of Adonai, the tribe Adonai takes is to come forward one family at a time. The family Adonai takes is to come forward one household at a time. And the household God takes is to come forward one person at a time. The person who was caught with things in his possession that were reserved for destruction is to be burned to ashes. He and everything he has because he has violated the covenant of Adonai and has committed a shameful deed in Israel. So Joshua got up early in the morning and had Israel come forward one tribe at a time and the tribe of Judah was taken. He had the families of Judah come forward and took the family of Zarhi. He had the Zarhi family come forward by household leaders and Zafdi was taken. He had his household come forward one person at a time and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zafdi, the son of Serach, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Joshua said to Achan, My son, swear to Adonai, the God of Israel, that you will tell the truth and confess to him. Now tell me, what did you do? Don't hide anything from me. Achan answered Joshua, It is true. I have sinned against Adonai, the God of Israel. Here is exactly what I did. 
when I saw there, there with the spoils a beautiful robe from Shinar, five pounds of silver shekels, and a one and a one quarter pound wedge of gold. I really wanted them. So I took them. You will find them hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent. It was all there, hidden in his tent, including the silver underneath. They took the things from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel, and put them down before Adonai. Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, the son of Zerah, with the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, everything he had, and brought them up to the Echor Valley. Joshua said, Why have you brought trouble on us? Today Adonai will bring trouble on you. Then Israel stoned him to death. They burned them to ashes and stoned them. Over him they piled a great mound of stones which is there to this day. Finally, Adonai turned away from his fierce anger. And this is why that place is called the Valley of Echor to this day. Quite a story. This is the story of the battle for the city of Ai. That's how you pronounce A-I in Hebrew. Just I, like your I that you see with. And it centers on a doomed character named Achan. And it falls within that sort of second tier, if you would, of well but lesser known biblical stories within Christendom. But unless one understands what precedes it and the very definite principle this story is built upon, its meaning gets diminished lost or badly misinterpreted. This subject revolves around the same one that the Battle of Jericho does. The ban. The law of harem. And the principle is brought forward in a whole number of ways into the New Testament. But probably none is better known than the one I'm about to read to you. And at the same time, because we've too much abandoned the Old Testament, we don't understand that the principle of the ban plays a significant role in this familiar story about Jesus. Luke 20:21. 20, they put him to this Shelah. Rabbi, we know that you speak and teach straightforwardly, showing no partiality, but really teaching what God's way is. Does Torah permit us to pay taxes to the Roman emperor or not? But he, spotting their craftiness, said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose name and picture does it have? The emperor's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give the emperor what belongs to the emperor. And give God what belongs to God. They were unable to trap him by anything he said publicly. Indeed, amazed at his answer, they fell silent. Whatever belongs to God is God's holy property. That's not too tough to grasp, is it? God's holy property has the ban placed on it. Period. End. Whatever is not God's holy property may be legitimately owned and used by somebody else. It does not have a ban placed on it. These re uh, Jewish religious leaders fully understood that the Torah allowed taxes to be paid to a human government. That was no problem. Okay? The law of Harem didn't cover that. But as has happens when traditions and doctrines of men begin to take on a larger role than the Holy Scriptures, commandments of God, rather straightforward issues can become very clouded in kind of a haze of glib sayings and religious rulings. Things devoted to God 
are God's. And therefore, what he does with them are up to him. Paul speaks of the two extremes of God's nature in Romans 11. His kindness and his severity. When a man attempts to disregard the ban by misappropriating God's holy property, that man will face God's severity instead of God's kindness. There is another familiar place in the Bible where the law of Harem, the ban, is at the core of the matter. But because the principle of the ban isn't well known or understood among most believers, it's not even recognized in the story. Malachi 3.6 But because I, Adonai, do not change, you sons of Yaakov will not be destroyed. Since the days of your forefathers, you've turned from my laws and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says Adonai's spoke. But you ask, in respect to what are we supposed to return? Can a person rob God? But you rob me. But you ask, how have we robbed you? In tenths and voluntary contributions. A curse is on you, your whole nation, because you robbed me. Robbed me. Bring the whole tenth into the storehouse so that there will be food in my house. And put me to the test, says Adonai Sabot. See if I won't open for you the floodgates of heaven and pour out for you a blessing far beyond your needs. Now, how can a person, think about this, how can a person rob God? What does that mean? Rob God. It means that by taking what already belongs to him, what's already been devoted to him, you've trespassed upon his holy property. That which is devoted to the Lord is his. It's under the ban. It cannot be taken or used. Just important, it cannot be held back. What is the result of violating this ban? A curse is on you and your whole nation. Here, even in Malachi, we get the two sides of what you do with your possessions. Give to God what is His holy property. You receive His kindness, His blessing. Hold it back. Use it for yourself. And what do you get? His severity. There are some things owned to God because he is predetermined they're his, such as the people and possessions of Jericho in our story here. Other things he leaves up to us, such as our voluntary contributions that we make by our own decisions. But when we agree with God on a voluntary contribution for him, whatever that might be, then ownership is immediately transferred to him. Whatever we devoted by an act of agreement with God, has already become God's holy property. Should we ever think that after we have told God we want to give him something, and now we're backing out and change our minds, to us it is typically just a matter that, well, we changed our minds. And we no longer wish to devote it to the Lord. In other words, the deal's off. No harm, no foul. But in the Lord's eyes, since it already belongs to him, upon your determination and agreement to devote it to him, now you're robbing him. This is why we have this concept in Malachi of tenths or tithes as referring to what has been legislated by God as owed to him. Whether you agree with it or not alongside these things called voluntary contributions that are about other things that can be devoted to the Lord or not by your choice and there's no penalty for your decision. Okay. Yet once decided, the matter's settled. Okay. Thus we see, as with Paul in Romans 11 again, that those who do give to God the things that are devoted to him, those things that are under the ban now, they will experience God's kindness and not his severity. 
And in this story of Achan in Joshua 7, we can see just how severe God can be in dealing with matters of his holy property. Now, one would have thought that the lesson learned at Jericho was that by following God's commands, doing things in his way and his time, his name would be revered and Israel would be victorious. Easily. It boggles the mind that all Israel did to capture Jericho was to march around it silently with the ark in tow, only the noise of their footsteps and those blaring shofars heard echoing off those surrounding hills. God did all the rest. The walls didn't fall because Israel made a loud enough racket with those horns. The walls fell because Jehovah, Yehovah, God Almighty destroyed them. Jericho didn't fall because of Joshua's brilliant battle plan or his army's fierce courage. It fell because of Israel's obedience. But now we find that after the so-called battle, really wasn't much of a battle, Jericho was it. After the battle was won, someone had disobeyed the Lord in a very serious way. And this was going to have a negative effect on what Israel would do next, attack the city of Ai. See, this person was Echan, and his crime was that he had misappropriated some property found in Jericho, property that was under the ban, property belonging exclusively to God. No doubt was left to his identity because four generations of his family history were given to pinpoint him. It's interesting that immediately we see that on the one hand, the children of Israel are identified as the responsible party. But on the other hand, that one sole human, Achan, was the perpetrator. Even though only one man had committed this crime, verse 1 explains that the Lord's anger blazed up against all Israel, the whole nation. See, this crime was imputed to the entire nation of Israel, not because they were seen as equally guilty as Echan, they weren't seen as accessories to the theft of holy property. They weren't accused of all having the same kind of evil disposition as Achan, or that in their hearts that they wanted to take God's property, but fear held them back. Rather, it was that Achan had not only robbed God, he had also robbed Israel of their purity and their holiness by his act. Israel now bore the burden of Achan's sin. One member of a group, a congregation, a family, a community, a nation can affect the whole body. The group has a responsibility to guard against such a thing. Investigate. Seek out the individual or the several involved if such a breach occurs, and then to take the proper God-ordained actions to punish that perpetrator and thereby relieve the overall society of that burden that's now on them. I mean, I cringe every time I hear a believer say, aren't you glad God doesn't demand that of us anymore? Aren't you glad that it is his economy there's no more criminals because by abolishing the law, there's no more crimes. And even though I certainly don't believe that I bear the guilt of the sins of my father or any other person, I certainly can bear the collective burden that comes from another's sin if I'm a member of that group whether it's a family or a congregation, and I dare say most of us have experienced that exact thing. However, that burden can become my guilt 
before the Lord. If I know that I have a responsibility to identify that lawbreaker and take God's well-defined actions against him, but I decide not to do it. Now I'm committing sin. I'm breaking God's laws. I mean, do you see that? You see how it could convert from your burden to your sin? Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's 1426. We're going to read this whole thing. It is actually being reported that there is sexual sin among you, and it is sexual sin of a kind that is condemned even by the pagans. A man is living with his stepmother, and you stay proud? Shouldn't you rather have felt some sadness that would have led you to remove from your company the man who has done this thing? For I myself, even though I am absent physically, am with you spiritually and have already judged the man who has done this as if I were present. In the name of the Lord Yeshua, when you are assembled with me present spiritually and the power of our Lord Yeshua among us, hand over such a person to the adversary for his old nature to be destroyed so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know the saying, it takes only a little hummus to leaven a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old hummus so that you can be a new batch of dough. Because in reality, you are unleavened. For our Passover lamb, the Messiah, has been sacrificed. So let us celebrate the Seder not with leftover hamets, the hamets of wickedness and evil, but with the matzah of purity and truth. In my earlier letter, I wrote to you not to associate with people who engage in sexual immorality. Pay attention to this. I didn't mean sexual immorality outside of your community or the greedy or the thieves or the idol worshippers, for then you would have to leave the world altogether. No, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who is supposedly a brother who also engages in sexual immorality, greedy, worships idols, is abusive, gets drunk, steals. With such a person you shouldn't even eat. For what business it is of mine to judge outsiders? Isn't it those who are part of the community that you should be judging? God will judge those who are outside. Just expel that evildoer from among yourselves. I don't know how this could be any clearer. The subject only concerns the body of Christ, the body of believers. And it is that when a person sins to some level that can cause harm to the body, then that person has to be identified, judged, and removed. Goodness, Paul says that the trespassing believer should even be handed over to the adversary. He's to be expelled from the congregation so that his sin doesn't infect or entice others with sin or put a burden of responsibility on the rest of the members. Matthew 5.29 If your right eye makes you sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Better that you should lose one part of you than have your whole body thrown into Gehinom. And if your right hand makes you sin, cut it off. Throw it away. Better that you should lose one part of you than have your whole body thrown into Gehinom. This from the Sermon on the Mount. Yeshua is, of course, not telling people to run out and gouge out their eyes and hack off their hands. It's a metaphor for explaining that as painful as it might be that one member of a group who is sinning can cause the whole group to feel God's anger, the one who is sinning must sadly be removed and discarded. Now I've spoken on this time after time. Let me do it again. You cannot make yourself a member of a group and then think you stand above the actions of that group in the Lord's eyes. It doesn't work that way. 
There are times when you're a member of a group, like it or not, like your family. They say you can't choose your family. Okay. But there are other times when it's by your choice. Okay. Either way, in many cases, you're going to bear the burden of the sins sometimes of even one of those members. And as it shows here in Joshua 7, it was not a known sin that Israel was being blamed for, that Israel was under the burden of. Achan had done his thievery in secret. It was only after Israel had suffered the consequence of God's anger that the leaders and then the people of Israel were even aware that the cause of this humiliating defeat at Ai was Achan's clandestine misappropriation of God's holy property. Verse 3 begins to explain the circumstances. Joshua had sent some men, spies, advanced scouts, to an area not too far from Jericho, near the towns of Beit Avon and Bethel, to reconnoiter. This place that he sent them is identified as Ai, A-I. In Hebrew, I simply means ruins. Since people were living there in large numbers, it tells us around 12,000, then at this time it obviously wasn't a ruin. But apparently this city had been built upon or near, very probably right beside, a large ruins, and so it was given the name of ruins. I. It was very common for a city to be built right next to a destroyed city because all the building material was there to build your new city. Flush with success from their easy taking of Jericho, Israel's army was feeling a little bit arrogant and cocky. They seized the city and its defenses and or rather they sized up the city and the and, and its defenses and they determined you know it really wasn't even worth sending very many troops up there to take it a couple of thousand three thousand that would be sufficient much to their surprise when the army attacked I they were quickly routed chased for a couple of miles 36 of their men were killed and as a result of this humiliating defeat all the confidence that had been gained from their stunning victory at Jericho went right down the drain. And as verse 5 says, the hearts of the people melted and turned to water. Now Joshua was equally as stunned. He went from being seen as a great general of an unstoppable force to a weak leader of a disheveled bunch of easily discouraged toy soldiers. His re in response, he went to God. He fell on his face in despair before the Ark of the Covenant. And he and the leaders of Israel were certain that the Lord must have withdrawn his help from them. They lay there all day, it says, until sunset, pouring out their grief and anguish before the Lord and seeking both comfort and answers. And the question asked of God is this. Hey, God... How come you took the trouble of bringing us across the Jordan if you just meant it to hand us over to our enemies? The question was really more of a complaint, wasn't it? Right. Not unlike ones we read of in Exodus that happened during Israel's wilderness journey. But the rabbis today severely fault Joshua for his whining. Because at least out in the wilderness, it was the people who were complaining. Here it was their leader, Joshua. Joshua expressed two fears to God. First, that when the other peoples and tribes of Canaan hear about this, they're going to gain courage and come to destroy Israel. Second, that Jehovah's name will be dishonored. Now it's good to remind you at this point not, not to think of the term name so much like Tom or Becky or Jerry the Hebrew word for name is shame. We pronounce it shem, but it's really shame. And it carries with it the sense of reputation or character. So the concern is about the reputation of God that preceded Israel into Canaan. 
a reputation of strength and invincibility, of holiness that by definition flowed over and into the people of Israel. I really like God's response in this. He's not at all impressed with all the drama kings flopping around in the sand before him, throwing dust up into the air. He doesn't much care about the sound of garments tearing or the wailing and the moaning. And he also doesn't appreciate Joshua and the leaders coming to him basically asking why God didn't do something about all this. In other words, obviously the fault lay with the God of Israel, not with them. It's maybe the most asked question of the Lord by Christians. Where were you, God, when all this was happening to me? Jehovah says, stand up. Stand up. Translation, stop praying, stop complaining. Seek the proper source of the impediment to victory. The issue isn't God. The issue is Israel. In verse 11, the Lord tells Joshua that Israel has sinned. That's why Israel can't stand up before their enemies. The sin is that some of the bands, some of the spoils of holy war from Jericho were not were improperly taken. And thus the Lord will not be with Israel again until that problem solved. The covenant's been broken and God and his justice can't bless and aid a bunch of covenant breakers. God's holy property was taken. And the consequences go way beyond simply breaking a rule. Remember back to our Leviticus studies. There we learned a principle that is about as foreign to the mind and doctrine of a modern believer as you can get. It is that both holiness and impurity, both holiness and impurity can be transmitted from person to person, person to object, object to object. Holy property is not hyperbole. It's not a nice, dramatic-sounding description to kind of liven up a Bible narrative. Holy property is literally something that has become holy to some degree or another as a result of being devoted to the Lord. It is theoretically capable, I underline theoretically, capable of transmitting its holiness to other things, including people. The priests could, under certain circumstances and depending on their order, touch holy objects. But lay people, ordinary Israelites, could never come into contact with the holy. Nor could holy things come into contact with them. The only possible result from such a happening is that the holy becomes defiled. Or that the ordinary becomes destroyed. Because God will not allow unauthorized transference of holiness from one person or thing to another. He simply won't allow it. That's why I said it's theory. Therefore, it was imperative that the thief responsible for taking those banned items from Jericho is found and those items retrieved. Because it was the Lord who knows and sees all things who apparently was the only one other than a Khan who knew of the crime, and because as of this time no one had come forward to finger the criminal, a process then would be needed to uncover the perpetrator. And that process is what we see being explained beginning in verse 13. The first step was for all Israel to consecrate itself. It was to prepare for a confrontation with God. Exactly what that entailed in this circumstance isn't clear. Before they had crossed from Moab to Canaan, the consecration that they were told to do involved washing their argument, uh, their, their garments and immersing themselves in water. Doing so brought a kind of righteousness upon them before the Lord that was a prerequisite for the divine act that was about to follow. Let's back up one verse to verse 12. It says that the only remedy for the situation is to destroy the things meant for destruction, the ban that had been taken. One verse later is explained that these banned items 
that are now in somebody's possession, of course we know from having read it that it's Echan, these things are under a curse. In verse 15 it says that the accursed person who has done this is to be destroyed by fire along with all his possessions. So the path is this. The, pr the person who has misappropriated the ban has become ban. Scary thought. In essence, the one who confiscated the holy property has become the holy property himself. Thus, the misappropriated ban, right along with the thief who took those items, has, through his actions and mostly from his personal contact with those items, become ban. And so, must be destroyed by the only approved method. Fire. Why fire? Because it fits the pattern of an altar sacrifice that necessarily involves burning up the item that's been devoted to God as the only means to his possessing it while at the same time preventing any person from using it. The method for finding the evildoer in, in chapter 7 was actually done by lots. Although the word lot isn't used here, Jewish and Christian scholars agree uh, that the methodology presented in these verses is precisely the way lots are used. Okay. So in verse 16 we see that Joshua got up early in the morning in expression of his zeal to get on with the work of the Lord and he assembles all the tribes as he was told to do. And one by one each of these 12 tribal princes came forward until the lot determined that the culprit belonged to the tribe of Judah. Then, then clan by clan, each clan chief of Judah came forward until the lot determined to which clan the criminal belonged. It turned out to be Zarhi. Then the Zarhi clan was brought forward family leader by family leader until the lot indicated that it was the Safdi family that had produced the thief. And then from the Safdi family, each head of his own household was brought forward until the lot indicated that the criminal was Achan. Achan was confronted with his crime. Now there would be no trial because there was no need. The Lord had divinely shown Joshua and all Israel who the guilty party was. We'll see what happens to Echan next week.